You're now listening to episode 93 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here, and today we focus on the CARES Act, a stimulus package recently passed by Congress as a response to the COVID-19 crisis. Today's episode was taken directly from a recording of a private webinar we held with members of our email list and the cash flow community. Please note this $2 trillion stimulus package was passed into law just last week with a bill of over 800 pages. We have not extensively gone through the entire bill just yet and are just covering topics relevant to real estate investors and small business owners, including the Paycheck Protection Program, the Temporary Matrimonium on Eviction Filings, forbearance of residential mortgage loan payments for multifamily operators, the technical amendment for qualified improvement property, which is big for commercial real estate investors, net operating loss carrybacks, waiver of 10% early withdrawal penalty for retirement accounts, and the stimulus package for individuals. And that's that check, that $1,200 check that everybody is waiting for. And we cover that in today's episode. We're still learning more about this bill every day and we'll continue to provide updates as more information becomes available. If you want updates, you can join the Cashflow community by visiting www.cashflowcommunity.slack.com or by following the link in the show notes below. Also in the show notes, we will link to a PDF summary of the bill that can also be obtained by joining the Cashflow community. Check for both those links again in the show notes below. And without further ado, we're going to jump right into today's episode. We are we're ready to rock and roll. So thank you everybody for joining us on a Sunday. We really appreciate it. Um, last week, a $2 trillion package passed Congress, which is honestly incredible. There's a lot of things in there that Tom and I have been sort of going through. Uh, I cannot promise anybody that we are going to be 100% accurate. <laughs> it was 880 pages that we read through and uh, we tried our best to pull out the information necessary or, or relevant to all of you guys. Um, but I'm sure that we will be learning about a whole lot of additional things and technicalities over the next week or two as other people in the industry tear this thing apart too. Um, so with that said, let's go ahead and get started. The way that we're gonna do this, we're gonna walk through, if you, if you haven't downloaded my summary, our summary report, uh, let me actually get that, get that information for you real quick. If you haven't downloaded our summary report, I'm going to paste a link in chat. And we're gonna be kind of going through that so that is now in chat, in, in the Zoom chat. We're gonna be sort of kind of going through that a little bit. And uh, it, so it'll just help kind of guide the conversation if you have that pulled up and it might help prompt some questions. So go ahead and pull that up. And just as a disclaimer for everybody here, we are recording and we do plan to release this as our Tuesday podcast episode. So everybody here has the opportunity to be on our podcast, which is really cool. All right, um, let's do it. So we're gonna start with the IRS deadline payment, uh, all that stuff that came out. Um, the IRS has officially 
pushed back the filing deadline and the payment deadline and the Q1 payment deadline to July 15th, 2020, as long as you don't owe more than a million dollars. So that first, there was a lot of confusion because the payment deadline was pushed, but the filing deadline wasn't. They did come out um, early last week, I believe, and released a notice saying that, yes, officially, July 15th is that new deadline. Um, that's all I want to say on the IRS. So we'll go right into the CARES Act, which is the, the hot button topic for pretty much everybody. And uh, we're, we're going to make our way as much as we can through the CARES Act, and then we'll hit the Families First Act if we have additional time. Um, but feel free, again, to raise your hand. Go ahead and put your hands down unless you have a question right now. So Christian and Alec, unless you guys have a question, uh, go ahead and put your hands down. When you do have a question, raise your hand. We're going to call on you. And we'd love for you to come off of mute and ask us your question. And we'll, we'll, that's how we'll kind of facilitate this. I don't envision this being a presentation. You'll see that I don't have one pulled up here. I envision it more of a discussion and us trying to really just figure this out with you guys. <laughs> so, so here we go. Um, who has seen, well, I'm not going to ask that because I don't want everybody saying yes. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Program. So this is, a, this is a good example of Tom and I went through 880 pages of the bill and we kind of breezed over the Paycheck Protection Program. And I was doing more research on this last night uh, with Tom, and it is insane, the Paycheck Protection Program. So if you have a business or if you are self-employed, you can apply for a loan. That loan is going to be granted to you, and there's an eight-week period to apply the funds to qualifying costs. Most of the qualifying costs you can just think of like as payroll costs. Uh, and, and also retirement benefits, um, uh, health insurance, all of that's going to qualify for these costs. So you apply for a loan. As long as you do not reduce staff by the end of June 30th, then 100% of the loan can be forgiven. So like, like that's, a, that's incredible. 100% <laughs> of the loan can be forgiven if you don't reduce staff by the end of June, June 30th, um, or if you don't cut, I believe Tom, if you don't cut anybody's, any one person's salary less than, or more than 25%. Yeah, if you don't cut people's salary, if anybody who is making less than 100K per year, if you do not cut their salary, then if, if you do cut their salary, then you won't be eligible for the, for the, full, um, for, for the full forgiveness. And self-employed individuals, they, you guys can qualify for it. You don't have to have employees. I don't know exactly how it works for you guys, um, but that's what we're trying to figure out because we've got a lot of flippers, developers that don't really have employees. They have a lot of contractors. Well, the way that the bill is written, you can also qualify for this Paycheck Protection Program. And what you have to do to qualify, you have to have less than 500 employees. And you have to be able to make a good faith, what do they call it? A good faith certification that the uncertainty of current economic conditions makes necessary the loan request to support the ongoing operations. It's really that simple. Apparently, banks are going to be facilitating this. They might have some additional requirements. You might have to jump through additional hoops with them. Uh, but that it's, it's truly incredible. It's like a replacement of revenue or profit even. Um, you, you get the loan, you apply it to payroll costs or your net profit if you're a self-employed self -employed individual. And as long as you've applied it in that manner, um, then it's 100% forgiven on the back end. 
And the, the most interesting thing about this, typically when you, when you have a loan that's forgiven, it's taxable income. Um, there's a clause that says this particular loan is not going to be, is not going to result in taxable income if it's forgiven. So mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing. I mean, if you have a hundred thousand dollar a month payroll, then you can take a $250,000 loan, apply those proceeds over the next two months, eight weeks. Um, and as long as you, however much of the proceeds you apply essentially to your payroll costs is hundred percent forgiven. So you don't have payroll costs for two months. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, do you need to be a U.S. citizen? Yes, you do need to be a U.S. citizen for this. And uh, can real estate owners apply for the loan under the Paycheck Protection Program? No employees. Yeah, so, so you can. I know that you can apply. I'm just not 100% sure how that's going to work with self-employed individuals that don't have employees. Um, there's, a, there's a piece of, there, there's a piece in here about net profit and I'm, I haven't like sat down and actually read through it to understand the calculations, but you can, you can apply. Any questions on that? Raise your hand if you do, or just chat us. What's up, Charlie? Uh, come off me. There you go. Oh, there we go. Um, so a few questions here and thank you. Um, what kind of historicals do we know yet that uh, we need to provide in order to qualify for this? Um, uh, like if I started a business this year, I have yet to push payroll through. Does that qualify? Tom, do you know? Yeah, so to get the loan, you don't need to present any financial information as far as is on where you need to have that good faith, uh, the good faith projection, but I'm pretty sure it's based on, it's based on a, like a pure it's so it's basically based on the last 12 months uh the the average monthly payroll for the last 12 months beginning with the period that you get the loan so if we were to get the loan say tomorrow or say uh, the 30 the 31st of, of uh march it would go back a year and then take the average monthly salary you know average monthly payroll um for that year so if you didn't pay any payroll yet in in say january but you did through the entire a year of 2019, then you're basically, you're looking at nine months, you're basically looking at nine months of payroll divided by 12. And that's how much you'd be eligible for essentially under this, under what we're seeing here. Okay. And just to clarify, you did mention that you believe, uh, so uh, if we're an S corp, for example, and we also receive a W2, uh, that even though we own the, the uh, company, uh, we qualify as employees um, and payroll underneath this program. Yeah, yeah. So, so S corp owners will qualify, and it's actually kind of an interesting thing because S corp owners typically what you want to do is you want to drop your salary down as much as possible to avoid FICA. Um, but yeah, yeah. Now, now that whatever salary you paid yourself through the S corp will qualify. But it would have to be a salary, like Thomas said, though, that was based on the average of the last 12 months, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. I think. Then, uh, last question I think on this for now I have is, um, uh, is this like a first come first serve? Like, do we get to rush out of the gate? Is there for everybody in this program? Like, any protections on that? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure, this, it, if I read this correctly, that there was uh, 350 billion. So there's, there will be uh, access to $350 billion of loans under this section um, for the covered period. So I don't know if there's going to be a first come first serve rush. 
uh, or how far $350 billion will stretch. Um, but uh, I would say that it's better to submit your request probably early, sooner rather than later, um, just to make sure that A, you get in and also to ensure you get it as quickly as possible. Um, and there's already talks about more relief bills coming or second or third round. So uh, I'm sure there'll be more, but uh, you know, for right now it's $350 billion and I would imagine it's going to be first come first serve. And I do apologize. I have one more question. Um, does this, did you say that uh, we can also use this uh, and we'll be forgiven for operating costs? And does that also extend to if we have ongoing contracts with um, 1099 independent contractors? The, the, the specific payroll loans, there's not. There's other loans available to you or grants available to you in this, in this uh, bill for other operating expenses, but not the, pay, the paycheck protection loans is specifically for payroll expenses. Um, as for independent contractors, I do know independent contractors are covered. Um, I just don't, the details, we'd have to look through the details and review them to give you specifics on that. Okay. And I guess, um, the advice would be just try and get as much as you can and you know, pay it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you would want to go and get the loan. Uh, for, first, like figure out the details of the independent contractor piece. I know that's going to be key for Tom and I over the next two days is really understand that calculation inside and out um, for all of our clients. But uh, you want to go figure out what you can take and you want to go and take it and you want to reserve it. So don't go and take it and, you know, build, build your house or whatever, <laughs> uh, but go take it, apply it to the cost. To this call? I'm going to mute. If, if you are on, please mute yourself while you are um, uh, attending, please. But uh, yeah, you want to go to the bank and take as much as you can put that into even a separate account for like some audit protection put into a separate account pay out of that account for the next two months for all of these payroll costs contractor costs and any amount that you're paying there yeah it'll be it'll be forgiven um, there might be a clawback at some point of the amount that you didn't use on the qualifying costs so that's why we say like uh, reserve it don't go and blow it um, but yeah yeah. In terms of first come first serve, I don't really know how that's going to work. Um, but I would imagine that Monday morning at 8 a.m. <laughs> when all the banks open, um, you, you want to be first in line. So, yeah, I, I, I think that there's plenty to go around from what I was reading online. There's, there's plenty to go around. But my concern is, is more so about the bank's processing time. So I'm um, sorry. So I go to any bank, Bank of America. I just talked to a business banker, and they should know the program by Monday morning. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, it, it, yeah, it's interesting. I, I have no idea how they're going to ultimately deal with it. I, I think it's going to be administered by the Small Business Act. The, excuse me, the Small Business Administration. Uh, so might want to check with this, like an SBA person, you know, local to you on you know the best place to look for this or the best way to apply well so i know that u.s bank has already has a page up for it if you go to u.s bank you can google u.s bank uh, paycheck protection program they already have a page up for it um so maybe start there but i think that everybody's starting there because i think they were the first like well-known bank to actually have a page for it so um 
Yeah, I, I don't know how banks are going to deal with this. I have no idea because the act doesn't necessarily, I mean, the act basically just says that they need a good, that borrowers, borrowers need a good faith certification. That's the requirement. Less than 500 employees, good faith certification. So it's kind of up to the banks to figure out what additional safeguards they want to put, want to put in place. But there's no personal guarantee on this. Um, there's something else. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's like, I think it's non-recourse. It's credit. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I imagine they had to do all that just to get it out as quickly and as smoothly as possible. I mean, if you've added a lot of compliance issues to this, it's only going to slow up the process. And I think the point of the entire bill is to get money into your hands like now, like ASAP. Yeah. We do expect over the next week to, to learn a lot more about it, but would still recommend calling the bank up, getting in line and um, just getting ready with, whatever details they do have uh, to start in that process. All right. Um, Robin, uh, you've, you've got your hand up. Do you want to come off mute and ask a question? Hello. Yes, I am here in Texas and I just have two questions. Uh, one, if I have an S corp um, for employees and the employees of course are the owner. So I'm just wondering if this S-Corp just started in August, how they're going to um, um, determine the, um, the salaries? Because they, they started paying salaries in August, but I'm just wondering, is it going to be like an annualization type thing or how, how are they going to average out the salaries to determine, you know, what they'll pay back under this program? Yeah, I think that there are three there's like three looks that they look at if you don't have 12 months of payroll. There's another, it might be January 1st to, for some reason I'm thinking January 1st to, oh no, that's forgiveness, never mind. I'm not, I'm not really sure, Robin. I think that's a good question. I'm not really sure if you, if you just started your S corporation or started it mid-year, does that affect your average monthly payroll? I, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. Sorry. Se second, second question really quick. Um, what if there's a company that they, they're, they're essential, they're uh, based, um, they're uh, determined and essential. So they, they've just been operating as normal. I mean, none of this has, they haven't been affected by uh, the coronavirus or anything. None of their employees are still paying them. They do have less than employees. So does that qualify for this um, program as well? I believe, I believe so. I believe, I believe so. It's just that good faith that your business will be effect negatively impacted by this and that okay. you're going to, for this particular payroll protection loan, um, okay. that, that you just need to make a good faith certification, which no one really knows what that means just yet. Um, right. as to that your business will be, t will, will be taking damages as a result of, of this, this, uh, crisis that we're in right now. All right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then I had, so somebody messaged me privately here on zoom and said, you know, if they're going to forgive the loans, no doubt that there's going to be a strict application process. So I, I agree, but I also think that what they're trying to do is balance the, um, the agility of getting money in people's hands quickly. 
So I don't, I don't know. Normally I would 100% agree that if they're going to forgive the loan, it's essentially free money and there's going to be a crazy application process to get this done. But I don't know. I don't, I mean, they, they passed a $2 trillion bill in a week and a half. Well, we have a, a comment from one of our, one of our attendees here uh, that says he spoke to his banker and he says, uh, the banker said, uh, this is a quote, uh, though signed by Trump, the rules, guidelines, and application procedures have yet to be published. I understand that our folks, uh, that, this, that, that from our folks, this should be accomplished by Wednesday. So this is the banker saying this. As soon as I have a concrete answer, I will, I'll be in touch. Have a nice weekend. So um, I think the bankers aren't really sure yet. Uh, I'm sure their compliance teams uh, are, are working on this. And this particular bank uh, said that they'll have it done by Wednesday. That's First Citizens Bank, according to, according to, the, according to John, the person who submitted the comment. Mm -hmm. um, and then somebody, somebody else messaged me and said, we reduced staff last week is there a cutoff period what's the time period look like so as a borrower you get to elect between two periods january 1st 2020 to february 29th 2020 or february 15th 2019 to june 30th 2019 so if you borrow you get to elect uh, which period you want the sba to look at for loan forgiveness so you do have some flexibility there Can you apply this loan to cover mortgage costs this is from James? Yes, you can. Yes. Mortgage, rent, utilities, um, and then all payroll, payroll, like salaries, health insurance. And I, I saw, I saw something on retirement accounts, but I wasn't sure how clear that was. So yeah. So pay, payroll costs include the following for everybody's listening. I have the list up here, right here. Um, wages, commission, salary, or similar compensation to employee or independent contractor. Okay. Um, payment of cash or equivalent to, uh, or cash tip or equivalent payment for vacation, parental, family, medical, or sick leave allowance for dismissal or separation, a payment uh, for healthcare benefits, including premiums, a payment for any retirement benefits and uh, payment for state and local tax assessed on compensation to of employees. So it's essentially almost like everything is covered that you normally pay your employees. This is insane. It's absolutely insane. And I, I am normally one for, I don't want handouts, but I'm highly recommending that everybody go and explore this immediately and talk to your bankers. It's, it's just, what, the, the, the problem for me is that we have no idea what's going to happen over the next two to three months with the economy. And if there's this lifeline thrown to you, um, take it, even if you don't need it. Well, I mean, you have to, in good faith, certify that you need it. But even if you don't end up using it, I still think it's a good idea to, to have that reserve uh, available. So. All right, Christian, you have your hand up. Do you want to come off mute? Yes. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Sorry. I got kicked off the car earlier and I, I may have missed this. So I'm an independent um, investor. I flip properties. And as you guys were mentioning at 1099. Um, so regarding the, these loan, are we going to be eligible also for that forgiveness or is it, is it only from what I was hearing earlier employees, are you having to keep employees on staff, uh, not reduce some payroll. Um, and then your recent comment about mortgages, cause I've got a handful of rental properties also. Um, and I've got two flips that are kind of stuck cause they came out about two months ago when all this kind of started and they're not moving, they're not selling. And, and, you know, obviously I'm in a position now where I'm, 
having to pay those costs? How how's that work? Yeah, so the 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 law, the bill says that it does qualify. Um, that you qualify, and, and I believe that they're doing a net income calculation. Uh, it also says that payments to contractors qualify. Now, I have not, Tom and I have not had the chance to tear that piece of it apart. Uh, but tell you what, since, since we, we know that we have a lot of clients that need that information, um, we will spend some time looking at that and we'll send out an email blast either tomorrow afternoon or sometime Tuesday with details on that specifically. Um, so if you, I believe that everybody here, well, you wouldn't be here unless you were on our email list. So just uh, watch out for, for an email from us uh, later on this week and we'll, we'll give you some more information with some examples. Um, yeah, we, we need a little more time to come through it to really be able to answer exactly what that's going to look like. I know that it is included. I don't know to what extent. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, w one of the issues that that is unclear too is for real estate investors, uh, technically real estate investors, if you just run a rental portfolio, you're not self-employed, um, by, you know, by definitions of, uh, other code sections of the IRS, you're, you're, it's considered a passive activity. There's no self-employment tax, um, on that type of income. So it's you know, kind of a question mark that we have to dig through to figure that out. Yeah, I don't believe that passive real estate investors will qualify for, for the Paycheck Protection Program. I believe that it is, you do have to be running a trader business. Um, but yeah, I just say, I, I don't know to the extent. Uh, Nick and Elaine, you guys have your hand up. Do you want to come off mute and ask your question? It sounds like uh, this would potentially apply to real estate agents though. So we have uh, rental real estate, uh, but I'm also a licensed real estate agent and do uh, you know, kind of standard uh, retail real estate activities. So it sounds like this, you mentioned commissions in that list of covered activities. Yep, cor correct. Yep. Yeah, so, so Nick, what, what we'll do is we'll send out more information a little later on this week with some examples. Uh, Tom and I knew when we, when we were looking at this yesterday, we, we realized that this is probably going to be one of the biggest things <laughs> outside of the tax changes for our clients. So um, we tried to dig through as much as we could to get a really high level overview. Um, separate but related, do you think that um, real estate agents will qualify for the unemployment benefit that's available through the states and then the extra through the federal government? I believe, I believe, so I, I did not spend a whole, frankly, I did not spend a whole lot of time looking at the unemployment section, uh, just kind of summarized it, but I, I do believe that, I believe that real estate agents would qualify. Tom, do you know? Hey, I think independent contractors qualify for the unemployment benefits when normally they wouldn't. As for the state benefit, I'm not 100% certain on the state benefit, but I know that on the federal benefit, it said that independent contractors do qualify. Yeah, because it was a huge expansion. Um, so they were including independent contractors and gig workers. So I would assume that real estate agents would fall into that. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for asking. All right. So let's move on to the next crazy section. <laughs> we'll do, well, we're, we're going to hit the temporary moratorium for eviction filings. That's something that I think everybody's going to be concerned about. Um, all right. So, there, so basically 120 days after the act is signed into law 
if you have a covered property, then you cannot evict your tenants for non-payment of rent. And you're also not allowed to tack on additional fees for non-payment of rent. Um, and you're not allowed to charge interest or anything like that. You're not allowed to file for eviction during this 120 day period. On day 121, you can file for eviction, but you have to give 30 days notice. So essentially, if you have a covered property, then you could be stuck not collecting rent for the next 150 days. A covered property is, there's a few things that are covered property, but mainly a federally backed mortgage loan or a federally backed multifamily mortgage loan. So if your loan is federally backed, then you have a covered property and you cannot evict your tenants and they cannot, they don't have to pay rents. Uh, covered property is also a, any, any property that participates in a covered housing program as defined in section 41411A of the Violence Against Women Act of 1994 or the Rural Housing Voucher Program under section 542 of the Housing Act. Somebody asked me the other day about section eight. Um, I'm not sure. I, it doesn't, doesn't appear to be, but I am definitely not an attorney, so uh, I just said I'm not sure. Uh, but that is what the bill says is a covered property. So that is, that's something really important to pay attention to. I think if you first, you need to go figure out immediately, like I'd be contacting your lender, my lender and asking, Hey, is my mortgage federally backed? Do I have a federally backed mortgage loan or federally backed multifamily mortgage loan? And if the answer is yes, all right, what's my game plan? Because if my tenants figure this out and they don't have to pay rent, then they're, just don't pay rent. Now there is, there are a couple other things in here for, especially for multifamily operators, um, but individuals as well. You can request a forbearance on your loan, the, the, the note that you have, you don't have to pay principal and the interest will continue to accrue as if you've made the payments. So you just kind of look at that amortization schedule and the interest will still accrue, but it's only going to accrue as if you've made the payments. Specifically for multifamily owners, um, you have to go to your loan processor and request forbearance. Uh, it, it seems very simple. You just request it and they give it to you. And it's a 30 day forbearance. You have to be current on your payments as of February 1st, 2020. And then you just get an automatic 30-day forbearance. If you want to extend that, you can extend it twice. So you can get, an, you can get two additional 30-day periods. In order to extend it, you have to request the extension. And it's just as simple as going to your loan processor and, and, or your uh, agent or whatever and, and asking them for an extension. You have to ask for that extension 15 days in advance of the end date of your 30 day period. So day one, I request, I get 30 days. Day 15, I request another 30 days. And then in 30 more days, that's 15 days before the end of my second 30 day period, I request again for another 30 days. If you request on day 16, they could potentially say no. 
So the interesting thing here is that tenants don't have to pay for 150 days and you only get forbearance for 90. Um, so there's going to be a gap of cash flow that needs to be planned for. As of this point, I'm not seeing a whole lot of things cash flow related in the, in the CARES Act that, that would help kind of cover you there. Um, there are things such as the net operating losses, qualified improvement property, and uh, some of that stuff that we're going to go over in a second that could potentially help put cash back in your pocket, but it's going to take a little bit of work and it's going to take you working with your tax advisor to get that done. So pretty crazy stuff. 150 days. They don't have to pay if they're federally backed. So go, go and double check. That would be my number one action item for everybody on this call and anybody listening on Facebook Live right now. Go double check with your loan provider if you have a federally backed loan. And if you do, come up with a game plan to, I don't know, shelter yourself from a cash flow hit for 150 minus 90 days, 60 day period. Robin, you have your hand up. You want to come off mute and ask a question? Yes. Do we know if this applies to a commercial as well, commercial properties? So it just says a covered property is a federally backed mortgage loan or federally backed multifamily mortgage loan. So okay. com commercially might be okay. Okay. All right. Thanks. Charlie? Thank you. Uh, before we go and request forbearance with our lenders, um, what are some things that we should, should consider uh, as far as the actual cost to us, um, credit-wise, lendability in the future, things like that? So, uh, disclaimer, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> um, the way that this is written, it, it, there's a section in here that I don't remember exactly how they, uh, I could probably control F this bill right now. I've got it pulled up all 880 pages of it. But uh, there is a, I believe they're freezing I don't want to say freeze. That's not the right word, but your credit should not be affected by the forbearance request. So I think that the cost is really just the interest that you would have to pay anyway on an ongoing basis. But I don't believe I, I didn't see anything in there that made me think that this was going to negatively impact anybody that requested forbearance because they did have that section. I don't know if Tom's looking it up right now, but they, they, they did have a section in there saying that, the credit would not be affected. I believe that that's what it said. Maybe Tom can verify here in a second. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for it right now. Um, yeah. And then, uh, oh, it looks like John said he already received a 90 day forbearance based on prior Fannie national disaster <laughs> plan on, on conventional loans. Very cool. Commercial lender was to get back to you. Um, there's a lot of information. Hey, hey Brandon. Yeah. This is John. Hey. So, uh, I have a bunch of conventional loans and I have a commercial loan, all four plexes. So let me just chime in here because I've spent better part of five days doing research on this while you guys were reading the act and everything. Awesome. Um, so forbearance is a industry term set by the government, been in place for every natural disaster. It looks like every natural disaster, they create forbearance based on the funding that comes out from Congress for that particular disaster. So you can find other references to forbearance. After forbearance, you go to mortgage assist, which are other types of things. Forbearance automatically freezes any credit reporting associated with it. Now, the current in place that I got from two different conventional lenders was 90 days. And on the Fannie site, because these were Fannie loans, 
they said that they would give additional up to a year, to, a total of a year, so nine more months, if Fannie would approve it. So the 90-day forbearance was approved by the servicer. Anything above that has to go to Fannie. Now, that all maybe have changed per the law signing. So, but that was what was in place. That's the letter I'm waiting on the mail, in the mail. And my brother is an attorney, and he said, I said, well, which letter is going to apply? Am I going to get another letter on this new program? He says, you might. So you're going to have to read your mail carefully as to what that terms of that forbearance that you're agreeing to and how it may change with this law. Is that clear? No, that, that's great. I, I love it. If anybody else has personal experience with it too, feel free to chime in. And, and if anybody has personal experience with anything that we're going to talk about today, feel free to chime in. Um, so John, John, let me just say, I, you know, let me just say, I did contact my commercial lender and I got put in a back office queue that's supposed to contact me. I'm getting a bit nervous. I'm going to put it in writing as I think you're required to do to ensure that you're requesting forbearance. What there, uh, I did confirm from the commercial lender, it was not government backed. So now you're kind of at the mercy of the commercial bank, I presume at that point. But I think there's going to be a lot of peer pressure not to, not to foreclose on you. Yeah, I'm looking through this bill right now, and there's there's there's, there's a lot of different stuff in here. And I don't see anything that's mentioning uh, anything related to the actual credit scores of it. But I think just like um, just like uh, the gentleman just spoke, just said, you know, when you're in forbearance, they they cease reporting your credit uh, to your credit the credit bureaus during the forbearance period. So, got it. Okay. Um, uh, let me just say one last thing. You might look at the uh, Fannie write-up if you've got Fannie loans for Hurricane Harvey because that was extended uh, forbearance. You could probably expect that this will be at least Harvey-like in terms of duration, but you can get an idea of the basic terms, but this forbearance program will be unique as everyone is. Great stuff, John. We really appreciate that. Thank you very much for chiming in there. And if you go on forbearance, and, and John, I don't know how this applies to you, but it, if you follow the CARES Act and you apply their version of forbearance, you cannot evict tenants during the forbearance period for non-payment of rent or partial payment of rent. You also cannot, you cannot charge penalties, interest, or really anything else for non-payment or partial payment of rent. So I uh, just wanted to call that out. Yeah, uh, further to that point, I, I'm sorry, ahead, further John. to that point, I discussed, I, okay, so I'll send you guys some links that, that I'm referring to. It, it one's to the CFPA, the organization that's supposed to look out for consumers, plus there's one for Fannie, Freddie, and someone else, I forget. So I'll just link those to you here in a second. Uh, secondly, um, if you can encourage your tenants to, um, just get out of the lease if it's if it uh, makes sense for you. Uh, you know, if you're like me, I have affordable housing. I'm used to people constantly going. We just tend to forgive it and move on. It's not worth collecting. If you can get them to to do your normal, uh, hey, just turning the keys and leave. That's by far the better thing to do. You're under no legal obligation to tell them their rights of this uh, no eviction. So in other words, don't mention the word eviction. Don't bring it up. Just if they want to leave and you want them out. Go ahead. There you go. 
That's great. That's some great insight right there. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, and then somebody, somebody asked me earlier this week about like, if you don't have a covered property, can you still evict tenants? And the answer is, well, again, I'm not an attorney, but at least as it pertains to the CARES Act, the answer would be yes, because the CARES Act is only applying to covered property. And again, covered property is federally backed loans uh, for the most part. There are a couple other sections in there. So just make sure that you make yourself aware of, of that information. Uh, Raymond, you have your hand up. Do you want to chime in? You want to come off mute? Hey, Dylan, can you hear me? Yeah. Great. Um, first of all, appreciate you guys doing this. Thank you. Um, and I had a question on the forbearance. If you do apply for it and get approved for it, uh, when the period is over, is the full payment due after that period? Or do you just assume, you know, normal monthly payments and say if you get the three months, it's just a three month longer loan? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how banks are going to deal with that. It doesn't specify in the CARES Act. All it says in the CARES Act is that the interest will accrue as if you've continued making payments mm -hmm. um, and penalties cannot be applied. So okay. for like missing the payments. So I, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with that interest portion that has accrued that you haven't technically paid for three months. Uh, I would imagine that that they'll probably end up spreading it out or maybe you would have the option to pay it all off at once. I, I, I don't really know. Okay. John, do you know? Yeah, I just texted you. The standard forbearance is a balloon payment at the end of the term. So 90 days, if you don't get an extension, you're supposed to come up with whatever you were supposed to pay. Um, not inclusive of interest and late fees. Again, they may change the laws associated with this particular natural disaster, but that's the way it has been working. So what they tend to do is that if it's a bad natural disaster, they'll extend the duration like they did for Harvey I want to call it 12 months so then at the end of 12 months you were you were supposed to do a balloon payment of your uh, amounts due that's what the sites government sites said so would that be principal and interest or just interest any idea principal and interest okay was my understanding of it uh, actually I'm sorry, you may be correct. It may be just principal. I, and that, that, that's one I can't exactly remember. Okay, thank you. Uh, Nick and Elaine, you guys had, had a question? Yeah, one thing I wanted to throw in um, back to the, the part about the evictions um, is that many states are prohibiting evictions, like regardless of, you know, who owns the mortgage or if it's, you know, totally paid off. Like, for example, in Minnesota, all evictions are stopped for any property and through May um, 2020. So different than the CARES Act, but something I wanted to, to bring up um, in, as part of that eviction discussion. Well, so well, Wayne, can you, can you still file? So eviction courts are shut down in our municipality. Like they're just, they're just closed and unknown when they would reopen. So you, you can't even file. Can't even file. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so then, so then this is going to create a really interesting situation at the end of all this, because you're going to have a lot of landlords who are finally going to be unlocked to file and then eviction courts just going to be backed up for forever. <laughs> yes, maybe, absolutely. Maybe you just take John's approach and, 
Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, this is good stuff. Let, let's move on to uh, the technical amendment for qualified improvement properties. So we'll start talking about some of the tax stuff and uh, the stuff that Tom and I are really good at <laughs> that we know a lot about. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll, we'll start talking about that and we'll, we'll work through these sections. So the first is the, is qualified improvement property. Now this is going to apply for people that have commercial property. Typically when you make any sort of improvements to the interior of a commercial property, it's going to be considered a qualified improvement property. Now when the 2017 tax cuts and jobs act came out, uh, they meant the intention was to change qualified improvement property to a 15 year life from a 39 year life. But when the final bill was passed, they had actually forgotten make that technical change. So qualified improvement property was considered 39 year property. And the big issue was that qualified improvement property therefore no longer or would not qualify for 100% bonus depreciation. So 100% bonus depreciation applies to all property with useful lives of less than 20 years. If qualified improvement property is 39 year life, doesn't qualify. So what they did is they made a technical change in the, with, with the passing of the CARES Act, they made a technical change to qualified improvement property to be 15 year life, and they made it retroactive to January 2018. So if you have commercial property, and if you made any sort of improvements to your commercial property in 2018 or in 2019, and you've already filed those tax returns, and you haven't claimed 100% bonus depreciation, you now need to go and look back on those tax returns and ask, should I amend and, and uh, change the useful life here? Should I, or, or if you haven't filed your 2019 returns, don't until you first look at your 2018 returns. Um, it just gives you some more options in terms of how you fix it. But yeah, if you've made any sort of big improvements to the interior of a commercial property, you definitely need to be looking at your tax returns and asking whether or not you should go back and fix them and claim 100% bonus depreciation. And my thought is that you probably will want to do that, especially with the next section that we're going to talk about in the net operating loss section. Uh, so we don't, we, we, we have probably like 15% or so of our client base is commercial property owners. So we're not like massive in the commercial property space. I don't know how many commercial folks we have here, um, but we can, Oh, Charlie. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, but we can always obviously help you kind of look through that type of stuff too. So. Any questions on that? Nick, Elaine, that, you guys have a question? Okay, no, false alarm. Anybody have a question on that? Charlie? Yeah, um, I, I think I'm a little bit confused as to <clears throat> what this change is and how, how is this different than uh, currently utilizing the bonus appreciation method? <clears throat> Yeah. So when, when you, so when you have a commercial property, um, qualified improvement property is going to be defined as any improvement made into an interior portion of a non-residential building at any time after the property is placed in service. So let's just say, for example, you know, you have an office building and you, uh, you have, you know, 90% of that office building is rented out, but you have a new tenant and you have to go and you have to improve that build out for that tenant so they can put their office in it. Um, that's qualified improvement property. Uh, the when the code when the tax code or the tax cuts and jobs act originally came out, it was both they intended it to be 15 years to 15 year property, which means 
if you did a $3 million renovation on a property, you would be able to take 100% bonus depreciation and get a $3 million deduction. But because they kind of rushed that bill through Congress so quickly, uh, they didn't make that change. Instead, it was 39-year property, which means it has to be divided over a 39-year life. And now what they're doing is they're saying, hey, look, we know we messed this up. So we're going to retro, we're going to change it to what we intended it to be, which is 15 year property. And we're going to make it retroactive to 2018. So that if you say you made that $3 million improvement in 2018, you can now go back and amend your 2018 tax return and collect the difference in the depreciation that you should have taken um, as a result of this, uh, this, this new change. So it could be substantial for, for commercial investors. And like Brandon had mentioned, we go into the NLL section, the net operating loss section next. You're going to see why that could be so substantial. And does this apply to commercial multifamily or just certain uh, commercial assets? <clears throat> so it's a non-residential property. So it would be primarily, you know, thinking office retail space, um, so stuff like that. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, residential versus not. So the IRS looks at it as residential versus non-residential. If you talk to a banker or a loan officer, they're going to say, oh, four plus units is commercial. <laughs> so not to be confused with the IRS's definition of commercial. They just say non-residential. Ray, you have your hand up. Do you want to come off mute and ask a question? Yeah, I was just wondering where a, a commercial parking lot would fall under that category. Um, we did a, a new parking lot at the end of last year on a property. And I was just wondering how that would affect that. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that that would be disqualified because the definition of QIP, Qualified Improvement Property, is uh, any improvement made to the interior portion of a non-residential building. And I think the parking uh, lot, generally speaking, is going to be an exterior component of the property. I missed the interior part. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ray, you might be able to qualify that as a land improvement, which, which has a 15-year life, which would then be eligible for 100% bonus depreciation. Okay, cool. Yep. All right, let's move on to the big one, net operating losses. <clears throat> okay, a net operating loss is when you have business expenses in excess of business income, right? I've got a loss and the way that the IRS looks at it is if you have a loss on your tax return, so after everything, I've got a loss, um, that is what they consider a net operating loss. They define this in section 172. Now, it, with the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, the Internal Revenue Code changed and basically said that a net operating loss cannot be carried back. You used to be able to carry it back two years. And they said, you're no longer able to carry it back. You have to carry it forward. But you're only able to apply in future years 80% of your taxable income. I think it was yeah, taxable income. So I've got 100K of taxable income and a $400,000 net operating loss that I'm carrying forward. Um, I can only take in those future years $80,000, 80% of my taxable income. The other interesting thing that the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did um, is they implemented Section 461L, which, uh, which defines excess business losses. So an excess business loss is essentially a net operating loss that is in excess of 250K if you're single, 500K if you're married filing joint over your like break even point essentially for, from all your businesses. So let me, let me try to put that in layman's terms. If I have a business that generates $100,000, 
And then I have another business that loses $200,000. My net loss is a hundred K. If I'm single, I basically have a 250 K run up before it's considered an excess business loss. So in this case, I don't have an excess business loss. I can just take my hundred K. I'm good to go. I can take my hundred K against other income, any other income, capital gain, interest, dividends, whatever. If I have a $100,000 net income for my business and I have a $400,000 net loss from another business, combine those together, I have a net loss of $300,000. If I'm single, I can only take 250K of that against all of my other income, interest, dividends, et cetera. So that means that there's a 50K net difference, right? I had a 300K total loss. I can only take 250. My 50K net difference is an excess business loss. It's now considered a section 172 NOL, and I have to carry it forward and it's apply, I have to apply it at that 80% threshold going forward. Um, if you're married, that threshold becomes 500K. So now I can have a business generating 100K in net income. I can lose 700K. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a net loss of 600. I can apply 500 of that loss to any other income. Now I've got this excess business loss of $100,000 that's carried forward automatically. So who's this a problem for? It's a problem for people that are like, we, we have a lot of tech clients who are selling a lot of RSC or they're, they're um, exercising stock options and selling them. And they might have like $500,000 of, of like, like a capital gain, right? Well, you can't use these business losses to offset those capital gain, that, that capital gain income. Interestingly, with the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the way that everything was worded is that wages, W-2 wages were considered business income. So really wasn't a huge effect on a lot of people. But starting in 2021, so, well, let me back up. Excess business losses first has been suspended temporarily. It's going to be kicked back into play in 2021. And then they're stripping out the definition of wages from uh, business income. And what this means is that if you're a real estate professional, all of a sudden you have to pay really close attention to what losses you take against your spouse's W-2 income, against all of your other income. You have to pay really close attention to the cost segregation studies that you're doing. Um, you have to time it right. You have to under, you have to get pre-calcs done to make sure that you're not going to, you know, exceed this excess business loss. You don't want to get trapped. But in today's world, basically what happened is they pushed excess business losses down the road. They kicked the can down the road. Um, so we don't have to worry about it anymore. And this is retroactive to 2018. So it's as if it never even existed. And then they changed section 172, the net operating loss section to say you can carry back net operating losses five years. So if I, if I, if my spouse has a 200 K W two and that's all of the income that we earn outside of my rent, my rental real estate, I'm a real estate professional. I could do a cost seg study. I get a $500,000 loss. The net difference is 300 K that is now considered a straight up net operating loss. And I can carry that back five years. The point of this is to give landlords cash flow immediately, give real estate investors cash flow immediately. And if you are in a situation where you can create a net operating loss, or you could have in 2018, you could have created a net operating loss, then you need to go back and do it. And you need to amend the returns and you need to carry those losses back five years.
Tom, did you have something you were about to say something? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that you have until the end of the you have until you file your 2020 tax returns to make this election. So if you don't do it for the 2020 tax year, then you're gonna pretty much you're gonna lose out on your ability to carry it back. Yeah. So it's a very short window, essentially, but the whole idea is to give you cash flow uh, by giving you a refund, essentially. Charlie, I saw you threw your hand up. Uh, I just want to make sure that I'm fully understanding this. Uh, so it's it's regardless of the actual, we discussed in the Slack channel last night, the service date of when I own said property, right? Doesn't matter. Awesome. Amazing. Yep. All we're looking at is can you create a net operating loss uh, as defined in section 172? And if you can create that net operating loss, which is, it's just, a, it's as simple as I've got way more depreciation than I do income from all sources. Uh, I mean, it's definitely more complicated than that. So if there's any tax people listening, they're probably rolling their eyes. So it's definitely more complicated than that. But in layman's terms, if I can create more depreciation than I have income, then I have a net operating loss and I can now carry that back. It does not matter when that property was placed in the service. This is huge. Amazing. Yep. So that means cost segregation studies, right? You need to go, go and look at cost, get with your CPA, look at the 2018 returns to start. Don't file your 2019 returns if you haven't already. Um, you file the 2019 returns, now we have to file a 3115 and a 41A adjustment. It becomes more expensive, a little more cumbersome. So press pause on the 2019 returns, go, get, go review the 2018s and look at every single property that you have purchased from 2016 to 2018 on those 2018 returns and ask the question, should I do a cost seg study? Now, you don't necessarily have to pay for the $4,000 big cost seg studies. You could use KBKGs or ELBs, cost segregator tools. These are desktop tools, $4.99 or whatever to run a report. We're not affiliated with them, and we should throw out the disclaimer that they have not been tax court tested, so make sure that you buy the audit insurance, because if you do get audited, you will need a full-blown cost seg study, and their audit insurance basically ensures that they'll come out and do that study for you. But you can, be, you can essentially look at smaller properties. You don't have to have a two, three, four million dollar property to, to push these losses up as high as you possibly can. Uh, so I hope that that helps. Charlie, you have one more question? Yeah, sorry, one more question. Um, so if I uh, buy a new property um, anytime between now and the end of this year, uh, I can still do a cost seg study, bonus appreciate, and utilize the strategy? Absolutely. Applies to 2020. Mm -hmm. So 2020 could be a big year for you too. Maybe, maybe you, uh, if you're a real estate professional, you're materially participating in your activities and you make the nine election to aggregate all of your rentals into one activity. Maybe you go throw 300 K into a syndication and you get 295 back as a passive loss. That's now non-passive because you're already a real estate professional and you're already aggregating. Uh, that was a lot that I just threw at you, but yeah, you, you can, you can certainly look at your 2020 acquisitions and get creative there and, uh, and carry those back. All right, so I've got some comments in the chat here. So questions, some questions in the chat and then Ray, we'll get to your question in one second. So uh, Holly asked, do you have to be a real estate professional for all five years that you carry back? No, you do not. A net operating loss is a net, is a net operating loss. Um, once it's in section 172, you can just carry it back five years. Uh, Alec asks, does it mean in 2020, I better buy many rentals, run cost seg to generate massive, passive losses that overshadow my W2? 100%. Yes. 
Uh, obviously, I, we cannot give investment advice. We are not financial advisors. So I cannot tell you if that is a smart move for your asset allocation. But from a tax perspective, the more you buy, the bigger the benefit. And then Grace, you asked, what happens if one of my businesses is a C-Corp and is the one who carries the losses? Ooh, that's a good question, Grace. You know, I, I don't think that Tom and I really even considered C-Corps. We, we, we have a few C-Corps clients, but we didn't really dig through it. So why, Grace, why don't you email us afterwards and we'll, we'll look into it for you and we'll try to get you something back. It's a good question. Ray, you have your hand up. Do you want to come off mute and uh, ask a question? Yeah, so to circle back to what you were just talking about, does that um, change um, if you do or do not qualify as a real estate professional? Is it so? Is it more beneficial to qualify as a real estate professional, say for next year for 2020, or how uh -huh. does that kind of work? Yeah, yeah. Now we're thinking. Now we're getting creative. All right. So if you're not a real estate professional, your losses, your rental losses are passive, right. and uh, you're not going to you're not going to you're not going to escape Section 469. Um, so if they are passive, then they will not create a net operating loss. So you do have to have non-passive losses here in order to create that net operating NOL. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because the way that this is all we're looking at that 1040, um, and we're we're deducting the rental losses on the 1040. So we're we're past Schedule E now, and we're going to the 1040 deducting the rental losses. And if we get a negative number there, high level explanation. If we get a negative number, now we have a net operating loss that we can carry back. Okay. John? Now you just nullified what I was gonna ask. Basically, to become a real estate professional, I'm not, and I think I could be. There's some benefits associated with it. It sounds like that's something I should explore. Definitely. 100%. I did a, uh, an hour presentation on real estate professional status on the tax and legal summit that we held. Um, it's, it's pretty complex. It's not as easy as other providers make it seem to be. Um, so just make sure that you're aware of the nuances at a really high level to be a real estate professional. And if you listen to our podcast, probably rolling, rolling your eyes right now, you've heard the spiel probably 50 times. Uh, to be a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours in a real property trader business and greater than half your time in a real property trader business. So if you work a full-time job, uh, you cannot qualify. You have to dial back the full-time job because the greater than half your time piece. But that's just, that, that piece of it just gives you the opportunity to basically deduct your rental losses as non-passive. So there's a second piece to this and that's material participation in your rental real estate activities. Uh, where we see a lot of issues is we'll have like a real estate agent who will be a real estate professional just through their agent activities. They're spending 750 hours leasing, um, putting together buyers and sellers, and that's all they do. So they meet the greater than half their time rule. And then they have like five rentals, but they don't materially participate in the rental activities. And, and, uh, and then they don't understand why if they qualify as a real estate professional, they're still not allowed to deduct those losses. So just make sure that you're aware of those nuances. Um, and then there's the aggregation rules and all that stuff. And if you, if anybody wants to chat with us about that offline, we can certainly do that. Um, we are, we're, we're, I think we're pretty, pretty darn good at that, that section. Also, just because that and Brandon spoke about it on way back on episode eight, 
of the Real Estate CPA podcast is actually on real estate professionals. So they have. I want to have the sunglasses on as the uh, cover art. <laughs> not, not, not on that particular episode. Oh, geez, man. Yeah, we have uh, uh, we have a part time staff that helps us on marketing, and he was going through and he threw up the uh, the, the OG uh, cover art with me and my sunglasses on. And I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> Start to an awesome podcast, I guess. Uh, but yeah, John, to, to answer your question, if you can qualify as a real estate professional, so, so, so the first thing here, you know, we, we want to think about the process. We want to we, we go to 2018. We want to look at what's on my balance sheet for 2018. And that includes my, all my prior properties too, but we're not going to really look at properties acquired before 2016 for something like this. So we look at the 2018 returns and we look at what, what's on the balance sheet for 2018. What did I acquire in 2018, 2017, and 2016? And then the next question is, am I a real estate professional in 2018? Or, or, well, I guess first, if I were to do all these cost studies, what would that look like? The next question is, can I take the loss? And if I, if I can take all of the loss, will the excess be a net operating loss? And that is gonna, gonna mean that you have, to, um, you have to be a real estate professional, unless you own short-term rentals. If you own short-term rentals, you do not have to qualify as a real estate professional on the short-term rentals. You just have to materially participate in the short-term rental activities in order to take the losses as non-passive. So a little loophole there for you. Um, the next step is looking at 2019. What did I acquire in 2019? Go through the same process. If I were to do the COSEC studies or really boost these losses, what does that look like? Um, am I a real estate professional? Can I take it? And then now that you know all this information, let's say that you can't do anything for 2018 and 2019. You're just stuck. Well, now you look at 2020 and you go, okay, how do I become a real estate professional? You've got eight months to, uh, wait, that's not right. Nine months <laughs> figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm just sitting here thinking about this, like brainstorming. It might, if you acquire enough properties in 2020, you know, it might be, it could be you know, theoretically very lucrative to leave your job, generate massive NLLs and carry that back and get your tax back from previous years. But that said, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, think about it for sponsors too. I don't know if we have any spot. We work with a lot of sponsors that <laughs> get some funds. Um, maybe you change your marketing, right? Hey, I can get you an NOL. Don't lie, right? Make sure that you're very clear on what that means and how somebody can actually utilize it. But there are now opportunities to, uh, to do that. I mean, I, I can be a sponsor and I can say, hey, for everybody that is working a part-time job or no job and you already have a portfolio built out, if you want insane tax benefits, I'm structuring a deal for you. And I'm, we're going to run a cost seg. You put 100K in, you're going to get 95 back and passive loss or, well, yeah, rental losses. And if you qualify as a real estate professional on your other stuff, you make a nine election, you get to loop in all that, all, all of my activities, my sponsor activities. Um, and you get to take those 95K losses. Maybe, maybe it creates an NOL, maybe it doesn't. But so the cool thing is, is that as people really start to, consider this and really start to understand it. And, and typically when new changes come out, by the way, it takes people like you guys are all way ahead of the curve just by being on, on this Sunday call. Um, normally it takes about six months for people to really kind of process tax code changes and then change their strategy. But as they process this, you're going to see just tons of acquisitions. I would imagine 
in Q3, Q4 this year, because it ends in 2020. Is there any benefit to becoming a real estate professional in terms of the first subject we talked about, the loan, if you're currently not? I mean, if you can legitimately do it, do you now have access to the loans that you talked about at the beginning of the call? Yeah, that's a good question, John. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know because if you're a real estate professional, uh, it being a real estate professional does not necessarily mean that your activities rise to the level of a trader business, which is key for next year when those excess business losses come back into play, right? It's like walking that really fine yeah. line. Yeah, right. it's going to take some careful planning to determine which, what, you know, what case, what side of the argument you want to be on. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so it's interesting the way that section 469 is written. When you're a real estate professional and you materially participate, your rental losses become non-passive, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it rises to the level of a trader business. It's, no, it's not automatic. Um, so for the loan, uh, the, the, the payroll, you were, you were referencing the payroll protection program, John. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that I'm, I'm unsure. I'm unsure. That's a really good question though. I'm going to write it down and actually do some research. Yeah, we might not ultimately have an answer until so until someone actually tries to do it, you know, and gets either rejected or accepted by the bank, you know? Yeah. Which will be like a year and a half later. And <laughs> You know, once everything gets processed, uh, yeah. once it goes through uh, the checks. It's Charlie's, Charlie's raising his hand. Sorry, just spitballing here thinking creatively. So given the uh, other sort of update in this CARE Act, uh, adjusting uh, inside improvements uh, to 100% uh, 15 year depreciation, could also be a great year to make some capital improvements to the interior if you got a vacant, uh, uh, vacant unit this year, right? Yeah, yeah, for commercial properties specifically, um, non-residential properties uh, for sure. I mean, if uh, if you have the capital available and it makes sense to do so, you're going to do it anyway at some point. Might as well do it this year and hopefully generate such a large loss where you could carry either you know you could you know carry if it does either eliminate this year's income and potentially even have an NOL where you can carry that back now up to five years and and knock off some of the taxes that you paid in you know over the last five years. Right. So essentially it'd be a great play to increase the equity of your property at the same time benefiting from that five-year carryback. Absolutely. Yep. And what you're talking about. So when you, even if you make it to residential property, um, now we're going to look at the 2013 tangible property regulations and every improvement that you make to your property, we're going to ask, was this a material improvement to the unit of property affected? So if I have a 10 unit apartment complex all under one roof and I have 10 HVAC systems, all on the same HVAC system, and I replace two HVACs, uh, arguably that is not a material improvement to the HVAC system as a whole, meaning that I can immediately expense the cost to replace those two HVAC units. Because that was 20%, probably a little less if you factor in ductwork, maybe 18, 19% of the entire HVAC system replacing those two out of 10. So when you're going through the improvement planning, or the CapEx planning. Yeah, if you have to turn units, that's one thing. But if you're looking at other parts of the property, um, you should definitely take the, the tax code in, in, into consideration as you, as you make those improvements, especially if we're trying to plan those NOLs um, or trying to maximize that. Absolutely. 
I know you posted Charlie on uh, on LinkedIn. I, I believe it was I believe it was you. Something about how um, while a lot of people kind of dial back on the capex, you were thinking, hey, it might be a good idea to go forward with it. And I, I love that idea. I think that it's a matter of how well how people are insulated at different levels right now, and insulation just means cash on hand. Um, and I think that if you've got the reserves, what's what's stopping you? Uh, you know, and, and you're, you're going to be the one property that's like shining come Q3 and ready to rock and roll while all the other ones are trying to figure out how to fix all their trashed units from the people that stayed there for 150 days. Yeah. But not only that, your, your tax savings from doing those capital improvements might end up actually paying, paying for part, you know, of, of the CapEx that you're doing in the first place, you know, given yeah. these changes. 100%. Yeah. All right, uh, Ray, I'm going to skip you for one, one question and go to Alec. Alec, you want to come off mute and ask your question? I'll try to find you. Oh, if you are speaking, we cannot hear you. Oh, there we go. Alec? Okay. Uh, John, do you want to come off mute and ask your question? I didn't have sure. one. Sure. Sure. Oh, no. we have another John. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, I was asking about raw land. I've got a parcel of land I'm developing for 11 duplexes. I'm wondering if the development cost of that will result in a net operating loss. Yeah, you, you would have to you'd have to build that land. You have to build up the development, and you'd have to place that into service uh, to make uh, by the end of 2020 um, in order to in order to be eligible for this. Because remember, take depreciation. Depreciation doesn't start till the property is placed in service. So it means it's rent ready, ready to go when you're listed for rent, like actively shopping for tenants. Um, and that then you'll then that property will start depreciating and that will give you the chance to take 100% bonus depreciation to potentially generate that that net operating loss. But again, that net operating loss would have to be determinable by the end of 2020 when you file when you file your 2020 tax returns. So in other words, you just have to make sure that that development's ready to go ready to have tenants by the end of 2020. Okay, thank you. And then what you can do, John, uh, so you place into service, you get the tenants, and then you run cost studies on those duplexes. Uh, the cost studies should be a lot easier for you since you are building it ground up. You have all the cost data. Uh, right. So, yeah, so it should be, should be easier for you to pull off. But, yeah, absolutely. If you, if you like Tom said, if you, can, if you can build, get those properties in service by the end of 2020, even if, even if all of them are rented on December 31st, they're in service for 2020 and, uh, and you can take that depreciation. You actually have to have the, re the tenants in place for it to be placed in service. Yeah. Tenants in place. Yeah. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. This is Alan. Hey, um, Hey, Brandon, Thomas, thank you for running this. This is very, very useful. So thank you. I just want to follow up on this comment on uh, run simple example in 2020, just run simple numbers. I, I make $100,000 on W-2, and then I buy five rental properties and run cost segregation that generates $50,000 in, five zero, $50,000 in losses. 
So effective tax rate on $100,000 is probably $20,000. Now I file my 2020 taxes and I get back those $20,000 that, that were withheld during the year. What happens with the rest of those $30,000 in passive losses? Is it an NOL that goes back to five years uh, back? Or right, carry good, over for the next year? Good question. So you have 100 kw 2 You've got rentals that produce 50K in losses for 2020. So first things first, um, you're not gonna be able to qualify as a real estate professional if you have a W-2 job. You can try, uh, but only one person, as far as I'm aware, has actually succeeded uh, in tax court and he was a boat pilot. So he wasn't I, actually- I, Let's qualify, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry to cut you. I, I do, my, my wife is a real estate agent and we, ah. we are, yeah, yeah, so yeah. There we go. Okay, so, so spouse is a real estate agent she qualifies as a real estate professional. Assuming that you and your spouse collectively spend enough hours in your rental real estate portfolio to, to, um, to hit the thresholds for material participation, you can count spousal hours for material participation, but not for real estate professional. So she qualifies as a real estate professional on her own. Collectively, you materially participate in your rental real estate portfolio. You can take the entire $50,000 loss as a non-passive loss from the rental real estate portfolio against your 100K W-2 income. And that would not create an NOL because you would still have an additional 50K of positive W-2 income. So you would need like 100 and, um, 101K of rental losses. Uh, basically, you have to exceed all of your other income with your rental losses. Then you'll have an NOL that you can carry back. Got it. Got it. So it's not limited by the, the taxes that were withheld during the year rather than the overall income. That's Correct. awesome. Thank Correct. you. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying this. Thank you. I'm sorry, right. I got a unique situation. Um, Go for it. I have $26,000 at the IRS that I left uh, rolled over from 2018 return because I knew I had some capital gains I was going to hit and I just wouldn't pay it as estimated taxes. I need that money now. How can I get that without doing my 2019 return? In other words, I already filed my 2018, but I want to get my refund instead of deferring it uh, and applying it to 2019. I want it now. Do you know, Tom? I don't, yeah, I don't that, know. That, that's, that's a great question. I, 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 we'd have to look it up. I think it's something that you might probably have to write up a letter to the IRS or somehow get on the phone with the IRS and probably asked to get that refund after that. Um, I don't know the specific details and exactly how to do that off the top of my head right here, right now. It's a really good question, John, because we have clients that do that same thing. And I don't, I don't actually know what the procedure is for that. Um, maybe, maybe you actually do have to go and amend the 2018 returns with something other than just wanting to claim that refund. Um, hmm. You rolled that okay, in 2019 though? Or, or 2019 was rolled to 2020? No, 2018 uh, refund was rolled to 2019 that I have not filed. Um, can you file your 2019 returns quickly? Not necessarily based on everything that's happening and everything where uh, I'm on the bubble. And sometimes there may be motivations for the loans that are coming out to file. Mm -hmm. And everything you're talking about may want to roll back. So uh, I don't know. I got to think about it. 
Yeah, one of my concerns is now just just kind of thinking about this a little bit deeper. If you did if you did intend to make that twenty six thousand dollars as a quarterly estimated payment for the twenty nineteen tax year, they might have already effectively applied that quarterly yeah. tax, effectively applied it, and meaning you would be no longer eligible to receive it as a refund anymore. Which I again, yeah, I, I we'd have to look into that a little bit deeper, but just kind of from the gut right here, that's kind of what I'm what I'm seeing happen. What might have happened? Yeah, I'm going to have no taxes. I, I, I'll owe no taxes for 2019. So I still will get that money back from 2018 return. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, you might just have to file that 2019 return, John. I think that's probably going to be the probably the most straightforward way to um, to get that back. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, somebody asked on chat, is net operating loss an aggregate loss or can it be done for each property individually? Uh, typically, it's going to be in the aggregate. Most of our clients, if you're, if you're a real estate professional and you're materially participating in your rental real estate activities, most of our clients make the nine election to aggregate all rental activities into one. And so you really just have one rental activity regardless of how many properties are within that one rental activity. And that one activity is going to create an NOL, hopefully, ideally. Any other questions on this before we move on to some, what we're con kind of considering low hanging fruit items? Cool. So we're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about the payroll tax credits. You know, if you, if you retain your employees, if you, um, if, if you retain your employees, you get a tax credit, uh, but it's, it's applied to payroll. Um, now, this could be coupled with this loan, this uh, Paycheck Protection Program. So think about that. And uh, there's also, you now have, if you're, if you're a business with, other, with under 500 employees, you have to provide all, all employees with two, two weeks paid sick leave and 10 additional weeks of family medical leave. Uh, so a total of 12 weeks. The DOL has yet to release guidance on how businesses with less than 50 can elect out of that. So just kind of, if, if that is you, um, just pay attention to the DOL. If you're less than 50 employees, you want to look at the Department of Labor. You're going to be Googling that on a daily basis. And whenever they talk, whenever they give you guidelines on how to apply for the exemption, you want to go through that process. The reason you want to go through that process is because if you don't, and you don't get a, you don't get the exemption and one of your employees goes out, they can take 12 weeks pretty much no questions asked. I mean, they do have to be affected by COVID or staying at home with kids. That's the, that's the big thing is it's, it's a pretty flexible stay at home for 12 weeks thing. Um, so just be aware of that. DOL is going to come out with guidance right now. The only guidance that we have is if you're less than 50 employees and if you can show that employees going out for 12 weeks would create a going concern for your business, which is a, an accounting term for, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go broke. <laughs> um, then you can submit to the DOL a request for an exemption and uh, they should be granting it to you, but more guidance is expected to come out. I actually expected it to come out uh, midweek this week. I have no idea now when it's actually going to come out with this passing of a $2 trillion bill, but, um, but we'll see. 
So employee, all, all of that though, it, you're going to get it all back. The, the two weeks paid leave, the 10 weeks uh, family medical leave, you're going to get it all back through payroll tax credits. And that's the problem. You know, when I'm looking at this, even for my business, I'm going, well, that's not very impactful for me as a small business owner because I have to carry the cost for 12 weeks. My ship could sink in 12 weeks and uh, I, I might not even be around to not pay payroll taxes to recollect what I forked out over a 12 week period. So that's the problem that a lot of small business owners are facing right now with, uh, without that DOL exemption. Um, but it is expected to come. And if you, if there's any paid leave or family medical leave, you do get payroll tax credits. All right. And we're going to be like doing a lot more on payroll tax. We just figure that that's going to be a later thing, probably mid year when people actually start thinking about, wait, all this money that I spent on my employees, how do I actually get that back now? And uh, that, that's when we'll start honing in on that. So the other, the other quick things, you, there's an enhanced charitable giving uh, above the line deduction, which is kind of a relatively laughable deduction, but it is above the line, um, meaning that you get a charitable deduction even if you don't itemize. So you can take the standard deduction and still take a charitable deduction up to $300. That's why it's kind of like, okay, well, <laughs> who somebody on their spreadsheet somewhere said, if we give a $300 charitable deduction to uh, 50 million people, then we will re-inject <laughs> $100 times 50 million people <laughs> into the economy. So, um, but anyway, I mean, it's there. You should take it. It's one of those low-hanging fruit items. The other thing is the waiver of the 10% early withdrawal penalty for retirement accounts. So you can take up to $100,000 out of your retirement accounts today and you will not pay the early withdrawal 10% penalty on it, ever. Um, you can pay the tax, the federal income tax, over a three-year period from the date that you take it out. So you don't have to pay all the taxes today. If I take 100K out, typically they, they'll withhold 25 or whatever. I don't have to pay the 25K today. I can pay zero this year and 25 next year. I can spread it out evenly. I can really pick and choose how I want to uh, to spread that tax out, which is really nice, really flexible. Um, you can also take a loan up uh, from your retirement account up to $100,000 now. So they've expanded how much you can take a loan out. Uh, and then there was an interesting piece that I didn't see a whole lot of other people writing about, but I was just kind of paying attention to. Uh, the way that the act was written is it basically said, you can repay the amount that you've taken out of your 401k within three years of the date that you take it out. And it's considered a 60 day rollover. I have no idea. I don't have any other information other than that. Um, but you know, when you take an, when you take money out of a retirement account, you have 60 days to put it back in and you won't be paying taxes or interest or penalties or anything like that. So if you now have three years to reapply it and it's still counted as a 60 day rollover, then the question is, do you have any tax? Is it a hundred thousand dollar loan? You take a withdrawal today, you get a hundred K in your pocket. Um, and you don't actually, maybe you put it back in, in three years, does it count as a 60 day rollover? And it's as if it never even happened. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't seen any other tax advisors write about it, which makes me think that I saw something that I'm either not understanding, <laughs> which could totally be the case. Um, or, uh, for whatever reason, I've stumbled upon something that other people haven't seen. I'm, I'm assuming it's the former. <laughs> you have a comment on that, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, from my from my understanding of it, from a limit, you know, same limited, you know, uh, 
information that I have as you is, is that you just repay it over the three year period. If you repay it, there's no tax that's due. If it was repaid, if it's not repaid, then the tax is spread over three years. But to your point, how do you, if, if you pay repay over three years, when is the tax ever paid? You know, is, how do you know when to pay that tax? If the same tax is supposed to be spread over three years, which is what it says. Yeah. Um, but just to point a comment on that, and again, we're not financial advisors, not tax, not investment advisors, but <clears throat> generally speaking, if the markets are depressed and your, so is your portfolio as a result of that, um, it may not, it may not be a good idea to sell your, sell your, sell your holdings uh, and take a withdrawal at this point in time. You might be better off sticking with your original retirement plan if you have a long horizon and you have other means of obtaining capital at this point in time. But again, not tax financial advisor says so not tax, excuse me, not financial advice, which is something to uh, keep in mind. And John, you asked, is the 100K loan from an IRA or just a 401K? I do believe, I'm actually trying to double check right now. I do believe it's just retirement accounts. Uh, it, well, it might actually just be, no, it's, it's from qualified plans. So as defined. Um, qual qualified plan might be just 401K or yeah. the likes and not IRAs. I yeah, believe I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm getting to right now. Yeah, it looks like it's just qualified plans. So I'm wondering if you could theoretically, not that this is something you should necessarily act on, but I wonder if you could theoretically, well, no, I guess you couldn't do that. Never mind. I'll just hold my tongue. <laughs> All right. When is the, somebody, so Bupinder asked, when is the new 401k law effective? Uh, I believe, I believe it's effective as of the date that this act is put into, uh, or that this act is signed. I don't see anything that's telling me otherwise, so. It's always when it's signed. It's always when it's signed. <laughs> yeah, well, that was what was interesting, right? So we, so Tom and I were watching this bill go through, um, go through the Senate and the bill, certain sections of the bill stopped changing. So there weren't revisions to it afterwards. And even though it had to go to the house, we were like, okay, Thursday, we're going to sit down and we're going to research. We're going to read this entire thing top to bottom. And we're going to try to put a report together and we're going to basically say, we expect it to be relatively the same. And it turned out to be, turned out to be relatively the same. So, but uh, yeah. All right. Last thing, stimulus checks and payments to individuals. If you, are an individual and you have uh, $75,000 of income or less reported on your 2019 returns. If you filed, if you have not filed reported on your 2018 returns, you're going to get, you're going to get a $1,200 stimulus check. Uh, if you are married, then that income level goes to 150 K and the stimulus check for you is going to be $2,400. If you're single, you're phased out of the stimulus check at $99,000. And if you're married, you're phased out of the stimulus check at $198,000. Basically, your the, the check, that $1,200 gets reduced by $5 per a, every $100 increment above the 75K or the 150K. If you have children, they add a 500K 
uh, or sorry, not 500K, geez, that would be great. <laughs> Think about that, man. Uh, what a boom in population. Now, to children, if you have children, it's $500 on top of the stimulus check, the, that base stimulus check. So now if I have one child and I earn less than 75, 75K, and then I get a $1,700 stimulus check, the nice thing about that is that my phase out occurs later right? Or at, or at a higher income number, because now I've got 500 additional dollars to phase out. So the more children you have, the higher that ultimate phase out is going to be. How are they going to distribute this? They are going to, if you have your, if you submitted like your, your bank account information on your 2018 or 2019 returns, they're going to use that first for a direct deposit. When are they expected to get this within the next two weeks is what they were saying, two to three weeks. So they're going to send out $1,200 and $2,400 checks to everybody in the next two to three weeks. If, they can, if, you're, if your uh, direct deposit bounces, then they're going to mail it to you at your last known address. So a couple things to consider here. First, if your 2019 income was way higher than your 2018 income, uh, then you might not want to file your 2019 returns, right? Because then you get phased out. Problem is if, if your address changed, then your check might go to somebody else. Uh, they won't be able to cash it, but you're not gonna receive it. Um, I, I have no idea how this is actually going to play out. We were talking about this, uh, at, in the firm last week and we were, you know, kind of laughing, like, like it's a great thing for the economy, but like, <laughs> I'm just going to have all these like random checks floating around because everybody moves, uh, people change bank accounts and that's just going to be, it's going to be insane. It's going to be absolutely insane. So I hope that they get it pretty, pretty accurate, but, um, yeah, it'll just be interesting to see unfold. So we have, we have Greg in there as Greg asking a question in the comment section, which number on the tax return uh, do they use to determine the $75,000? It's going to be your AGI, your adjusted gross income. And so that's before your standard itemized deduction, section 199A, all that stuff. Nick and Elaine, you guys had a question? Um, we have a baby due any day now. Mm -hmm. So, um, we only had two children in 2019, but we'll have three children in 2020. Do you anticipate that there would be a way for us to get the additional payment for our third child that's not yet born, but will be any day? I don't think so. I don't think that that's going, uh, so they're going off prior data and they're just trying to get cash in people's hands quickly. I don't, the, the thing is, is that they've passed 2 trillion of the what, eight, eight that they're supposed to pass over the next like three weeks. Um, so there might be additional 2020 things that get thrown in there. But right now the stimulus check is based on 2019 returns. If you haven't filed, it's going to be based on 2018. However, the way they're going to calculate the tax credit for this is going to be based on your 2020 income. So you might get a higher tax credit in 2020. So you might you might get paid a check here today for the amount that you're supposed to get paid based on your 2019 information. So in other words, without this third child, but then when you have this third child within 2020, um, when you go ahead and calculate that tax credit um, in 2020, you might get a you might get a bigger tax credit than the check that you received effectively. So in other words, you will, you will receive that portion, just not this year. You'll receive it uh, when you file your tax return in 2020. That makes sense. Thank you. Also, uh, good luck. Well wishes. Thank you. So we're, uh, 
we're very fortunate that we're in a hospital system that has plenty of capacity right now and is allowing fathers to be there during labor. So mm. we're, we're hoping he comes any day now, the, the sooner the better. Mm. Uh, okay, who else? Um, is there a requirement, Mike asks in the chat, is there a requirement about having to actually have paid taxes? No, you do not have to, your, your tax liability could be zero. You don't have to have paid taxes on your 2018 or 2019 returns. Just have to have them in the system. And then Ray, you had your, your hand up. You want to ask yeah, your question? Um, I'm assuming that the, the 1200 or 500 per child is not going to be taxable for the, for the year on income wise, or do we know? I believe yeah. that is. Yeah. As of right now, it shouldn't be taxable. Really what it is, is they're giving you an advance on a tax credit that you'll be receiving on your 2020 tax return. So, oh, okay. yeah, so it's, um, yeah. So as far as, as far as everything that I've read on this so far is not taxable. But it will ultimately have to see how things unfold. But right now, it's not taxable as income, as far as okay. I know. Thanks. All right. I think that's pretty much it. We we covered the big things, um, and we're going to be sending out some emails this week with some of the. Uh, you guys asked great questions. Thanks so much. So we're going to be sending out some emails a little later on this week with uh, with some clarifications. We're definitely going to talk about the that paycheck program and self-employed individuals. So just be looking out for an email there but thanks guys for making this like really collaborative and and uh and asking a lot of questions and i'm going to send my email out to everybody in case you don't have it it's just brandon.hall at hallcpallc.com feel free to email me with additional questions i cannot guarantee that i will reply to you in any any fast manner but the questions help us just kind of with with additional research and then putting out additional content uh, but this is good this is good I think that we covered all the main stuff. So thank you all. I have to let Tom go. I made him work a Sunday, which is not, not normal for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you all again. Really appreciate it. And hope you have a good rest of your Sunday. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.